I believe that light shines brightest in dark places. And I believe that when life is good and when life is easy, we are called the light of the, the world, the light of the earth, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And I believe that God wants us to shine for him. I believe that we shine the brightest when we face difficulties. And there is no promise in the Bible that you and I would not go through difficulties. I realize there are people who will teach that, but simply they are not teaching what we find in Scripture. They are twisting Scripture to be able to make those statements. There's nothing that says that you're not going to have hardships. There's nothing that says that you're not going to have difficulties, that you're not going to suffer in any way, shape, or form. As Paul has been unfolding things before them in this uh, first chapter, he has first of all greeted them, showed his great affection for them. Remember that the Philippians held, this Philippian church held a close place in Paul's heart. They were a poorer church and they were one of the only churches, if not the only one, to help him while he was in prison. They gathered together a gift and they brought it to Paul while he was in, in prison. And as the letter unfolds, we'll get into more of those details. But he lets them know the fondness that he has for them. And then he wants to let them know. Now, he hasn't written them since he's been in prison. So he wants to let them know these things that have happened to me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul being in prison has been good for him. And then he goes to his future. I know that the things that happened to me, he said, are going to work out for the furtherance of the gospel. He knows that God is going to do a work inside of whatever it is that he's facing and going through. And he has great confidence in that. And he, and he just, he tells them, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. If I die here in prison, then it's gain. And if I, if I don't, then that's to, better for the work of the gospel. Well, now as he gets to this last section, He's now going to talk to them about where they are, about what he has, what God has in store for them. And he's going to talk to them about suffering. And in John 16, 21, it tells us that God has his purposes in suffering. It says, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow before her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. This is one of the ways that God uses suffering. We don't like it. I don't know. Maybe there's a gal here who, would, who likes giving birth, you know, likes the actual process. But I know there's a lot of women here that like the baby that come from the process of giving birth, even though there's pain and there's suffering. And that's the comparison the Bible makes. We go through suffering and God is birthing something in our lives. That's what he's doing through suffering. We, we don't like the suffering, but we're going to like the result that we get from suffering in the very end. And so in verse 27, he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. So now as he turns to them, he turns away from his past and his future and what God has planned for him. He says to them, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. It's like he's boiling things down now. This is not the only thing that Paul's going to tell them. But right now he's saying, this is what's important, that your conduct is worthy of the gospel. 
Paul knew that the things in prison had worked out for the furtherance of the gospel. And he wants the Philippians to live their lives in such a way that people can see Christ in the way that they live for the furtherance of the gospel. And we want to live that way too. We want to be able to live our lives in such a way that when we are able to share our faith or when someone finds out that we're a Christian, if we've planted seeds, if we watered those seeds, that God would be able to add the increase. Now, it's worth me just defining the gospel again, just because there may be some here who haven't been in the previous passages. We've defined the gospel in each one of them, but I think it's worth defining it again. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is the gospel that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That is the Old Testament foretold that he was going to die for our sins. Isaiah 53, I think at six, God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all and so many other passages, Psalms 22 and so many others. Some people believe that Jesus ended up getting himself crucified by accident and that the disciples thought, what can we do? Let's say he died for our sins, but that cannot be the case because the Old Testament foretold it. And then it goes on to say, and that Jesus was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. Again, we find his burial and his resurrection referred to in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 is one of those places which talks about the dying of the, the suffering servant coming back to life. And Psalms 22 is another place where it talks about this person who's actually crucified before crucifixion was ever invented. And it makes this statement, yet he shall see his days. Even though he's died, he is going to see his days. And so this is the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. People are not going to get saved because you tell them any other story within the Bible. They're genuinely going to be saved when they realize that Jesus has taken our place on the cross, the substitutionary work of Jesus, and that I am under the wrath of God. And when I receive him, he becomes my substitute. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, the Bible says. So we enter into heaven and eternity because of it. Now we're to live our lives worthy of the gospel. And may God speak to us clearly about doing so. Now, what if you're struggling? What if now you say, well, I, I, I try, I want to. I go to church and I tell God I want to live worthy of you. And then I get out in the world and I find myself struggling with a stronghold or I find myself uh, getting back involved in something that is in the world. Let me just give you a little bit of, of biblical help on what it means to live worthy of the gospel. I think, first of all, the Bible says that there's a struggle inside of each one of us, that our flesh struggles against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And the Bible says this, so that we don't do the things that we wish. Any of you guys say amen to that? You got the, your want to in the spirit, but your flesh doesn't do it. Peter had this problem, right, in the garden. Peter, uh, Jesus said to Peter, your, your flesh is willing or your spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak because Peter was being driven by his flesh. And so he fell asleep over and over and over again at that particular time. And so the Bible tells us, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
That's a great statement. That's a great verse. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's the idea that if you sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit you're going to reap life. If you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you're going to reap corruption. So let's just think back a couple of days. Sorry to do that to you. Maybe it's a good thing. Have you been sowing to the Spirit or have you been sowing to the flesh? And if you sowed to the flesh today, you're going to be surprised if you reap from the Spirit tomorrow. Or if you sow to the Spirit today, you are not going to reap from the flesh tomorrow. Because the things you're sowing today are going to help you in your, in your future. That's just such an important thing for us to know. And what a great promise by God that if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so what you say, well, how do I walk in the Spirit? Well, I don't think it's that, I don't think it's that tough. I think we make a mindset. Maybe we get up in the morning and pray and say, Lord, I want to walk in the Spirit today. I want to walk with you. I want the things that I do to glorify you. And you begin to walk in the Spirit. And if you get angry, you have an outburst of anger, there's something else that happens, then you just ask Him to forgive you. That's, that's Christianity. That's what we do. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. God doesn't hold it over your head. God doesn't go, great, you were walking in the Spirit so well, now you ruined it all. I don't know about you, but I'm like that. I like, if I'm doing good, I'm okay. When I blow it, I think I've blown everything. It's like, I got to start all over again. And God's like, just confess it and let's go on. Let's just wash your feet up. You're doing okay. Your, your head and your hands are still clean. Let's just move on. Now, there's two other things the Bible says, which I think helps us. And it's really the same thing in the Old and the New Testament. It says in the Old Testament, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When is the last time that you deliberately delighted yourself in God just to delight yourself in the Lord? And your, your desires then are going to be godly desires. Why are, our, why are our desires desires for worldly things? Because often we are delighting ourselves in things of the world. And so then we get the corruption of the world as a desire. And you think, well, if I desire something that's bad, if, I delight in, if you delight in God, those are not going to be your desires. So the way you change your desires is to delight yourself in the Lord. The New Testament passage, similar. Jesus said in John 15, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you can ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you. So you abide in Christ. Walk in the spirit. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you abide in Christ and God's word abides in you, you make it a priority to be able to have God's word abiding in you. And then you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I think that this is the way that we can let our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's got to be something deliberate that we do. If you don't go, you know what, I'm, I want to live my life in such a way that it's worthy of the gospel. If you don't do that deliberately, I don't know that it just, it doesn't just happen. You just don't go, I'm sure glad I went to church tonight. I heard I was supposed to walk worthy of the gospel and I'm going to now from now on, if you don't get deliberate, you're not going to do it. And if we want to walk worthy of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation, then we, our friends, our families, our coworkers, our acquaintances, the people that we love that don't know Christ or maybe are barely walking with them at all are going to be affected by the way that we live our lives worthy of the gospel. And he says this 
because he knows that they love him so that whether I come to you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. He goes, I want to hear that you guys are living your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Again, in this whole first chapter, the gospel has been the key. The things that happened to him in prison have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. He knows that if he, if he lives on, it's going to be good for them in the gospel. And now we are to stand in one mind and one accord or one mind and one spirit. Now, what does that mean to stand in one mind or in one spirit? Well, I think, first of all, it doesn't mean that we agree on 100% of things. I like to say that if you and I agree on 100% of things, one of, it, one of us isn't thinking, and I know I'm thinking. And, and there, are, there are, are, are men I respect greatly and have respected greatly that I agree with almost everything they say, but I'll hear them say something and I'll go, mm, I don't know if I agree with that. But like Pastor Chuck Smith, I agree with 99.9% .9 of the things he says. But every once in a while, I'll hear something and go, ooh, ooh, I'm not sure that's what that passage meant. Not sure that's what it was all about. Because we're not infallible, right? That's why we want to receive the word of God with all joy, but search the scriptures to see whether or not these things are so. Now, it would be really easy for us to be in unity if we were like each other. If we came from the same state, if we looked like each other, if we talked like each other, if we didn't have differences, then it would be really easy to have unity. But that's not the kind of unity the Bible's talking about. The Bible's talking about us having differences and still being in one accord. That I might have a difference from you and you might have a difference from me, but we know that it's all in Jesus Christ. And that's what matters. And our emphasis should never be on our differences unless our differences are, are majors on the gospel of Jesus Christ. If, if, if I suddenly stand up here and go, I don't think Jesus is God. I don't think that Jesus is deity. Then we're not going to be able to have unity because that's one of the majors, right? So there are certain things that we have to believe in order to have unity. But there are other things that don't matter. There are other things that, like a lot of eschatology, it doesn't matter. I realize it matters to some people a lot, but I, I, don't, I have great fellowship with people who don't believe like I believe in the area of eschatology. I mean, they may be radically different. Like I have a friend who's an amillennialist. He just believes that there's no millennial, that, that things are going to get better and better and better. And we tease each other. But it's all good because we have Christ in common. That's what matters. And if we have a church, and I've often said this, if we have a church where there are differences among us, but we can have unity, that's real unity. If we all agree on everything, if we believe all the same thing, well then, well, of course we're unified. But if we have differences, but we can still be unified, then that's extremely powerful. I go back to the very beginning of Calvary Chapel. And when, if you know anything about the history, there, there is a new documentary that is out, by the way, on the beginning of Calvary Chapel. 
If you know anything about the history, Pastor Chuck was a four square pastor for many years and decided that he was going to leave it. And he found himself taking over a little church named Calvary Chapel. It had about 20 people in it. This is the 60s. And in the 60s, everybody went to church in suit and ties. And that's just what you did. You didn't, you didn't go casually. In fact, John MacArthur blamed Calvary Chapel for ruining the way people go to church. <laughs> I don't know whether that's the right place to put the blame on or not, but, but, but the people that attended the, the little church Calvary Chapel that he took over came to church. The gals in dresses, dressed to the hilt, the guys in their suits. They put on their Sunday best and they went to church. And that's what people did in the 60s. And then one hippie got saved. His name was Lonnie Frisbee. He was a pretty dynamic guy. He also had some real problems. If you know anything about Lonnie Frisbee and the struggles that he had, he had some doctrinal issues and he had some moral issues as well. But a lot of hippies began to follow. And he was very dynamic. And a lot of hippies started going to church so that pretty soon there was a man in a suit and a tie next to a hippie with blue jeans and a vest and no shirt. And there are stories, multiple stories from those days about the struggle inside of the church to whether or not they should let hippies bring in their bedrolls. We're talking Southern California now, right? Whether or not you were supposed to let the hippies bring in their bedrolls. But God did something. I think it was maybe the, the, the disillusionment with the whole sex and rock and roll thing for a lot of these young people. And God began to move in their midst and there was this giant movement that took place so that churches were suddenly filled with people that were radically different. But there was this unity that was in Christ. And that's the power. That's the strength of unity. And Paul wants them to not be arguing about what they don't, what you don't agree on. If what you, if, if you and I disagree on something that isn't a major, then we don't have to, we don't have to make that the center of our fellowship. We don't have to argue about that. Now, we could discuss it. We could talk about it. I like talking about spiritual things and, and, and biblical things as much as the next guy, maybe even more. I used to like to argue, but the Bible says that the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle, able to teach, correcting those that are in opposition. So if there's someone in the fellowship that has something that needs to be corrected, then we should go to them in a spirit of, Galatians 6 tells us, in, if someone in sin, gentleness and meekness considering ourselves, lest we ourselves be tempted. And so all of this lends to the unity that we have in Christ. And I believe that this unity is extremely important. It's so important that it's brought up over and over and over and over again. It's one of those topics that no matter what letter you're in, you're in Colossians, you're in Ephesians, you're in Philippians, you're in 2 Timothy, he's going to talk about unity. Unity is something that is brought up over and over again. He wants us to be unified together. So what does he say about unity, particularly here? He says um, that you stand fast in one spirit. So that term standing fast, that you deliberately stand fast, uniting together with one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel, knowing that there would not be differences that would keep us from presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ because people are saved by what the gospel is. And he's, then he says, and not in any way terrified by your adversities. They are the church in Philippi. This is a Roman city. This is the first place Paul preached. 
on, on uh, European soil that was this close to Rome. And there was a lot of persecution. Rome had sanctioned religions, religions that were, they, they said that they were okay. And if you were a sanctioned religion, no one could persecute you openly. It's not that they weren't persecuted, but no one could persecute them openly. Judaism was a sanctioned religion by Rome, and yet they were dispelled from Rome twice by Nero. Nero removed, kicked all the Jews out of Rome twice, even though they were a sanctioned religion. Christianity was not a sanctioned religion, which means that any government in any city could persecute Christians and there was no protection in Rome at all. And they were persecuted. Uh, under Nero especially, you can imagine if Nero removed the Jews who was a, was a sanctioned religion by Rome, how much he attacked Christians. The accounts of, of Nero is that he dipped Christians in, in wax, burned them upside down to light lanterns for his gardens, that he sent them into arenas. Although some of that is, is questionable, how much of it happened is questionable. It happened. How much it happened, we're not really sure, but it did happen. What we do know about the Philippians is that they were suffering. When we piece it together through the scriptures, some of them had died. Some of them were being persecuted. Families had been separated. There was, there was really bad things happening to them. And they were, they were standing with their faith in Christ. And, and we think, wow, that's, that's really something that they would do that. But here's the thing. Persecuted Christians, it seems like God gives them the grace to step up their game. All over the world today, there are Christians that are persecuted. There's a passage in, I think it's Zechariah. I meant to look it up today, but I think it's Zechariah that talks about the last days and anti-Semitism, how the whole world will hate Israel. That's happening today. And Christianity is the same thing. Around the world, especially in Muslim countries, Christians are being persecuted. We haven't seen it for a while. You remember ISIS beheading certain Christians, which, by the way, died well in their faith. Christians that know if they are involved in a, in a place where there is Sharia law, they know if they give their lives to Christ that they're going to die. But Jesus is doing something or that they could die. There's a strong possibility that they could die. But Jesus is doing something and there's a huge movement in these Muslims, Muslim worlds. I've talked to you here recently about a revival happening in Israel. There's more Christians in Israel, Jewish Christians, than ever before. And it's happening at a rapid rate. The first time that I went to Jerusalem was in 1988. And if there was a church there, it was small. Now, if you go to Israel, there are some significant churches that are around Israel. And that's God moving in the last days. So the same thing is true among the Palestinians. Palestinians are getting saved. There's a move happening, which is just fantastic that God is moving among these people. They're living in impoverished conditions and God reaches out to the poor and God's doing it today among them. But a lot of them know that they will suffer because of it. 
and they suffer greatly. The Philippians were suffering great adversities for it. And Paul says to them, which is to them proof of perdition. Now, he's saying the fact that you guys are being persecuted and you're facing adversity to those who are doing that to you, it is proof of your waste, that, that it's a waste for you to become a Christian. That's what perdition means. It's proof of your, to them, it's proof of your perdition. You can see how that is. Someone's persecuting someone and they think, what a waste for you. This is happening. You're being killed. You're being arrested. It's proof of your perdition. But to you, of salvation. He's saying the fact that you are suffering these adversities, to them is a proof of perdition, but to you it is proof of salvation. God is working within you because of your suffering. And that from God. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yes, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, I don't know what kind of persecution that we will go through. Persecution comes in different levels. You may have never have really suffered for Christ. If you're in college and you're a Christian, you probably did suffer some. You probably were mocked for what you believed. So in verse 29, he says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, on behalf of Messiah, he has granted you not only to believe. This is a key for us, by the way, when we're sharing, faith, when we're sharing Christ with people. God grants people salvation. When I'm praying for my unsaved family, friends, co-workers, acquaintances, I pray that God would grant them to believe and grant them salvation, grant them repentance, that God would grant them to be able to do it because God's got to move in their lives. God's got to draw them. I love when it talks about Lydia. Remember, she was the first woman to receive what Paul said. I love in the book of Acts that it says, as Paul shared, God opened up Lydia's heart and she believed. It wasn't Paul was so amazing at the messages that he gave that people listened to him and got saved. No, God opened up her heart. And God opens up the hearts of those who believe. And that's why someone that you see in your family, fa sharing Christ with a family fa your fa is so hard, isn't it? Because for whatever reason, they just don't want to listen to you. They'll listen to someone else. You tell them all about Christ, they'll go meet someone else, they'll tell you, hey, I became a Christian. How? I talked to this guy over here, barely knew him. I talked to him, I got saved. <laughs> I've been praying for you. I've been trying to share with you forever, but you won't listen to me. For it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake, that they would suffer. Now, why is there, why does God allow suffering in the life of a believer? I gave you a clue in the beginning of our study, a little introductory verse. A woman gives childbirth, has a baby, she forgets all the pain. She's got that baby in front of her and she goes, it's worth it. How do we know that women say that? I'm not saying all women, by the way, because some of you are looking at me like, mm, no. How do we know that? Because as soon as the baby's born, gals will say, I want another one. It's just, it's been like, give it, give it some time. I, I want another one. You're willing to go through it all again because of the child. And so that analogy tells us that God's doing something with suffering. 
He's doing something in your life. There's something that's going to happen that is worthwhile the suffering. Now, from my perspective, you can tell, talk about me. From my perspective, I don't want to suffer. I don't like suffering. I would like to pass on suffering. I would like all the suffering in my life to be done. I've suffered before already. I would like that to be enough. Let's let that be enough. From God's perspective, it's probably not enough. God wants to do more with it. Now, one of the hardest questions for apologists to answer is if God is good, why is there evil and suffering in the world? That's one of the hardest questions to answer. And the reason for that is because they'll usually tell an emotional story with it. They'll talk about some child somewhere who has suffered. They'll give you that illustration first. And then they'll say, if God is good, why does he let that happen? Why does he let there be suffering within the world? The question has an accusation against God in it, that God's not good. That's the accusation because he allows evil and suffering. And the question assumes that God has no reason for suffering. And that allows their question to be effective. But if you go, well, I don't, I don't make the same assumptions you do. I, th I think that there is a purpose in suffering. And I think that Jesus Christ becomes that great example of how we could do the greatest work of all through great suffering. God created a world whereby we interact with the things that are around us through suffering. We know something's hot when we touch it because we have nerves that feel pain and that pain allows us not to injure ourselves more. What about when you blow out your ACL? I'm tempted to ask if anybody's ever blown out their ACL. Miserable, right? Absolutely miserable when you, when you do it. And you protect it. Why do you protect it? Because you're suffering. And so you're just going, you don't want to put any weight on it. Same is true if you were to step on a nail and the nail went through your shoe and into your foot. You dug the nail out, pulled the nail out. Let's, instead of dig out, you pulled it out. And then you would keep your weight off of it. Why? Because that pain is allowing you to be able to heal. God created a world where there is pain that we interact with the world around us. And so we suffer because of that. God's doing things through the suffering. Now, that's on a very basic level. And then you say, well, what about suffering that seems like nonsense? What about a child who was suffering? What about suffering that, who says God doesn't have a plan for that? That God doesn't have a purpose and a plan for all of the suffering that we are going through. That God uses the suffering. And there are quite a few verses that really help us to understand it. First of all, Philippians 3.10 He's still talking to them about suffering when he gets to chapter three. He says that I might know him, Paul talking about himself, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. I like that. I want to know God's power and in the fellowship of his suffering. Paul wanted to fellowship in the suffering of Christ. Now, Paul did that. We'll read that here in just a moment. In Colossians 1.24, Paul says, I now rejoice in my suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the aff affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, that's a crazy statement to me because to me, what Jesus did on the cross was completed. 
Jesus said, very last thing he said on the cross, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit, it is finished. So how can I add anything to the cross? The answer to that is I can't, neither could Paul. But what I can add through my suffering is for people's salvation. That when I suffer, people watch me to see if I really believe what I said I believed. I think it was 2010 or so that Greg Laurie, uh, Pastor Greg Laurie from Harvest Christian Fellowship, lost his son, Christopher. Lost him in a car accident. He was in his early 30s, devastating to lose a child, right? And he came out to his, the congregation the, the Sunday after it happened. Someone else taught, but he just wanted to greet him. And he came out and he said, I just wanted to come out and tell you guys that I would never have planned to go down this road, but I'm going down it, and that I still believe. That's one of, I think that was one of the most powerful statements he ever made. God, he's an evangelist. He has the gift of evangelism. God uses him to get people saved. He can sneeze and people get saved, <laughs> which is great for him. It's great for God. But when he went through that suffering, people saw he really believed what he said. It wasn't just on the surface, but it was, it was more than that. Now, let's talk for a few minutes about what the Bible has to say about suffering. Number one, God made a world that we interact with feelings of pain and suffering. Number two, suffering is temporary. Suffering is worldly. We're citizens of heaven, and we are going to a place where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. And as we get near the end and we start facing sufferings, people start talking about eternity. As people are, are, are getting older, they say things like, I can't wait to go home. I'm done in this world. I can't wait to go there. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And this is Paul. For our light affliction, he calls it light. For our light affliction which is but for a moment, is working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now let's read what Paul's sufferings were. This is what he calls a light affliction. When Paul was called to be a Christian, he was told, God told him, I have many things for you to suffer for my name's sake. I, I wonder if I did altar calls like that. How many of you here today would like to give your life to Christ and, and God has great things for you to suffer? Just raise your hand. Just raise your hand. Paul received it. Listen to what Paul says. Paul, in, in, this is 2 Corinthians 11, 22 through 28. And Paul is upset at these Judaizers that are coming in and taking advantage of the Corinthians. And they're listening to him. Paul Paul is a Pharisee. These guys are Pharisees and Paul's upset that they're listening to these guys and they're blowing off what Paul said. So here's what Paul says. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. He says, in labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. 
in prison more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Five times Paul was scourged. Three times I was beaten with rods. One of them was in Philippi. He says, I was stoned. That was in Lystra and Derby. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night in the day I have been in the deep and journeys in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in cities, in perils of the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in parables among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness, besides all of these things which come upon me daily, my deep concern for the churches. No wonder in our study last week, Paul said, I'm thinking about just going and being with Jesus. For me to, to live as Christ, but to die is gain. After he had suffered, what he would say is a light affliction. And in Romans 8, 8, 18, he says, for I consider, this is such a key verse, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which, which, will, which shall be revealed in us. So the sufferings that you and I go through, whatever they may be, and they may be severe, cannot be compared to the, to the glories we're going to receive. God does have a purpose in your suffering. The Bible gives us several different statements on this. In Psalms 119.71, it says, um, the psalmist says, it was good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Affliction, suffering, cause us to really focus in on God. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light affliction, which is for a moment, works a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. Genesis 50, verse 20, this is Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers who had ended up in prison who became crippled during that time. Here's what he says. His dad dies and his brothers are now worried that he's only been nice to us because dad's still alive. So they go to him and they re-apologize. We're so sorry for what we did. Here's his response. This is Joseph's response to them. This is Genesis 50, verse 20. But as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. Slavery, imprisonment, crippling, God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is in this day and to save many people alive. I think that's a statement that we could say in our lives. Oftentimes, what people mean for evil, God means for good. And in Romans 8, 28, I couldn't end this message without this. And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Don't make a mistake. Don't think that he's saying, and God causes things bad to happen. He says, and God uses all things. Whatever it is, good, bad, enemy, not, God uses them together to work out all of these things. And then in verse 30, he says, having the same conflict which you saw in me and you now hear in me. That is, they are now, he's in prison and they are suffering the same conflict that he is. I have four quick thoughts in closing. Number one, God has a, great, a greater purpose in suffering. He's, he's always doing something in our suffering. Number two, sometimes God uses suffering to bring us back to him. The, again, the psalmist said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. 
It was the affliction that brought him back. I know in my own personal life, I talked about it this weekend, that I walked away from God for a year. God afflicted me to bring me back. Sometimes God uses sufferings to bring us back to him. Number three, God uses pain and suffering to discipline us. And it's good. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that no discipline of the Lord is, pre is pleasant, but it brings forth a peaceable fruit of righteousness. And if, if you're struggling now with something and God's got to discipline you to bring, bring you back and to help you through this, then so be it. The pain, God often uses pain to discipline us and bring us back. God uses our suffering for his glory. The disciples, and this is in closing, the disciples were going into the temple and they saw a man who was born blind. And the disciples said, who sinned that this man was born blind? His parents are this man. Which always amazes me because he's, he's born blind. What did he do? Sin in the womb? Do they believe in reincarnation? What are they thinking? That he would do, and Jesus said, neither. And that's important because some people, there, there are people today who will tell you if you have some kind of suffering in your life, you're in sin. It's important. Jesus said, neither. But this man was born blind for the glory of God, that the glory of God would be revealed in him. And God, when we face difficulties, hardships, darkness, distresses, we go down roads we don't want to go down, God can use that to speak to people who would never be spoken to unless we went down that road. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you encourage the Philippians that in their suffering, they would, they would, that they'd been granted to give, that they would live for you. And Lord, I pray also for us as we face sufferings and struggles that we would live for you as we do. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.